I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter. As we continue our study through this epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, and the text we come to this morning is found in verses 1 through 3. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Imagine for a moment that Islamic extremists suddenly took over the United States, and because of their hatred for Christians, they began to torture and kill, as they do in many parts of the world. And some of the people that they are torturing and killing are your family members and your friends, some perhaps in this room. Imagine for a moment that you were incarcerated and that you knew that your own violent death was imminent. What would you wish to tell your family and your friends as you sit in some prison cell someplace, perhaps in another state? What would you want to tell other fellow believers that were perhaps scattered now all over the United States and perhaps other parts of the world? Maybe you would want to tell them how much you love them and how important it is for them to keep the faith. Maybe you would want to call them to arms to rise up against those that have brought such death and destruction upon our land. Well, this was precisely the context of Peter's epistle here. You may recall that in the first 12 verses, Peter has given us a doxology of praise because that's what he wanted to share with his friends, his family members, brothers and sisters in Christ scattered abroad. He wanted to encourage them to, first of all, contemplate the mysterious glories of their salvation as spiritual aliens to help them somehow transcend the difficult times of, that they were experiencing and to give them a better grasp of the triumphant hope that was theirs because of their salvation, reminding them that they were chosen, sanctified, sealed, and blessed. He reminded them of the source of their salvation, who was the Heavenly Father that drew them, the power of their salvation, which is that quickening power of the Holy Spirit that regenerates people and transforms them. He reminded them of the promise of their salvation, the inheritance that we have as believers and all that that entails, and the certainty of our salvation, that it is an inheritance that is protected by the very power of God. And therefore, because of that living hope, he wrote to them and said, I want you to understand your inheritance and therefore live in light of eternity. I want you to live separate from the world. I want you to live with a reverential awe. And because of the magnificent redemption that is yours, I want you to remember that it's important to live godly lives and to have an undying love for the brethren. That was the passion of the Apostle's heart as he sat in a cell awaiting his own death. But he doesn't stop there because he knows that these marvelous truths will lose their Luster, unless five key elements are nurtured in the lives of believers. And that's what we want to look at this morning. There are five crucial virtues of the Christian life that cannot be emphasized strongly enough. Five marks of a mature saint that will not only help one survive the tragedies of life, but literally transcend them with victorious living. Let me give them to you and we will elaborate on them. First of all, we must celebrate our power source, which is the Word of God. Secondly, we must jettison our sin. Thirdly, we must acknowledge our desperate need for the Word of God. Fourthly, we must disapprove 
of our current spiritual level of maturity. And fifthly, we must learn to rejoice over past blessings. Indeed, these were the central truths that sustained Peter in the midst of this great trial in the final days before his own personal crucifixion. And history tells us that his wife was crucified first before him and he had to watch her die. And from reliable sources, we know that he knelt before her cross and kept reciting to her, remember the Lord, remember the Lord, remember the Lord until she passed through the veil into eternity. And then he chose to be crucified upside down because he did not feel he was worthy to die even in the same manner as his Lord. And yet knowing the things that were facing him, this was his heart. And this is what he wanted to share with his brothers and sisters in Christ. These were the noble virtues that he gave to them and therefore to all of us that can bring comfort and joy and strength and hope in times of need. And I might also add that these, dear friends, are really the marks of a mature saint. The marks of saints who have persevered in their faith down through redemptive history. So again, after extolling the marvelous aspects of their redemption and helping them understand that they now have an imperishable new life that is empowered by the equally imperishable, as he says, word of the Lord that abides forever. And at the end of verse 25, which was preached to you, then he says, therefore, verse 1 of chapter 2. And here we come to, I believe, the first category that we would want to consider, and that is that we need to learn to celebrate our power source. Therefore, in other words, he's saying to them, in light of your miraculous, supernatural, Holy Spirit empowered new birth, that now you are a transformed new creature in Christ. Because you have been, as he says in verse 23, born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and abiding word of God. Therefore, in light of the incomprehensible power source that you have from God through his word, I'm going to ask you to do a few things and we'll look at those in a moment. But first, he's saying, in essence, won't you join with me in celebrating the power source that we have for Christian living both now and through eternity, namely the word of the Lord that is revealed to us in Scripture. Now, beloved, you must understand that if God had not revealed himself to us in the word, we would have never been born again. We would merely grope around in the darkness of sin until someday we die without life, without meaning, without hope. And that's why Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is the truth. It is this word that Paul spoke of when he said that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Dear friends, indeed, the message of God carries with it the omnipotent power of God, the only power in heaven or earth that can overpower man's sin nature and cause us to be born again. The only power that can generate the miracle of the new birth. The Word of God has the power indeed to save as well as to sanctify. I often go to Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9, where the psalmist extols both the characteristics and the benefits of Scripture he says that the word is perfect, meaning that it is whole, it is complete, it is utterly sufficient, restoring the soul. He says that the word of God is sure, meaning that it is trustworthy, making wise the simple. He says that it is right, meaning that it is appropriate, it is fitting for every aspect of life, rejoicing the heart. He tells us that the Word of God is pure, meaning that it is utterly untainted by sin. 
and it enlightens the eyes. He says that it is clean, meaning that it is uncontaminated by any falsehood or by any error. Enduring forever. And finally, he says that it is true. It is righteous altogether. And friends, you must understand that whenever the Lord reveals himself through his word, through its teaching, through its preaching, when we read it or whatever, the spirit of God will inevitably unleash supernatural power upon that word. He is doing that even now in this room, as he will do when other people hear this message around the world through the media, through the Internet and so on. Because whenever the word is preached, we know from what God has said in his word that it is going to accomplish one of two purposes. It will be the divine agent of sanctification or the divine agent of condemnation. It will either lead people to salvation and to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, or it will further seal them in their unbelief. In fact, the prophet Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. I might add that it is for this reason that in the preaching of the word, there is no, no need for endless anecdotes and little stories. There is no need for clever props and entertaining humor. There is no need for multimedia presentations and some musical extravaganza to somehow manipulate people so that somehow they might respond to the word. There's no need to integrate man-centered philosophies and the misguided tenets of psychology to somehow tickle the ears of people with the message of Scripture. Dear friends, why taint purity with poison? All we need to do is unleash the Word of God and it will do precisely what God has promised that it will do. In Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, we read, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that it transforms us from glory to glory. In 2 Peter 3.18 we're told that the word gives us all things pertaining to life and godliness. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we're told that the Word of God is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And so, dear friends, we begin with this first concept that Peter writes to the spiritual aliens scattered abroad, and therefore to all of us, that we must begin, therefore, by celebrating the power source of the new life that we have in Christ. And in light of that, he tells us, secondly, that we are to jettison our sin. Notice what he says in verse 1. It says, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. By the way, this will be the natural response for anyone who truly celebrates the Word of God in his or her life. Putting aside, he says. In the original language, it has the idea of jettisoning something, of rejecting something, or throwing off or discarding. It was even used in other places in early Greek to describe the jettisoning of one's filthy clothing. For example, you can imagine going down to Lower Broad here in Nash Nashville and you see some of the poor winos with the horrible clothing that they wear that somehow stink of every imaginable bacteria. And imagine if you could clean up that person 
and give them clean garments, give them a bath, and then to think of that person going back and putting on those old rancid garments. How foolish that would be. And it's in light of this that Paul would say, for example, in Ephesians 4.22, in reference to your former manner of life, lay aside the old self. It's the same verb in the original language. Lay it aside. Put it off. Jettison that stuff. And he says, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Instead, he goes on to say, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We read in the New Testament that change, biblical change, is always a twofold process. It's putting off and it's putting on. We are to strip off the old and we are to put on the new. In fact, the Apostle Paul used this very figure in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 8. He says, put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self. History records, by the way, that in ancient baptisms, many times people would emerge from the waters and go to a place and dispose of those old clothes that would be utterly discarded, and the church would furnish them in that ceremony new clothes that would therefore symbolize the putting aside of the old filthy garments of the old life and donning the robes of righteousness in the new life. So Peter is saying here, put aside all the sins that might cause you to forfeit blessing in your life that would be tantamount to putting on the filthy old garments of the old life. What are these things that he mentions here that we should put aside? First, he says all malice. By the way, this is a term that extends beyond the English definition of scheming to somehow inflict injury or suffering upon someone, but rather it is a term much broader. It's the idea of putting off wickedness and evil in general. So therefore he's saying that I want you to put off all wicked things in your life, all manner of ungodliness. Secondly, he says put off all guile. The verb literally is one that means to catch something by bait or with bait. It's the idea of being deceitful, of being devious, of being duplicitous where you say one thing, but you really mean another. The idea of being dishonest, where you spin and misinform people to trick them into believing a lie. This is common among politicians or anyone trying to manipulate other people. Put that off. All that guile. Put it away. Also, all hypocrisy. The original language gives us the idea here that this was a term used for actors that put on a mask. He's saying, put off the mask. Get rid of the masquerade. Get rid of the veneer of sincerity and spirituality. Quit trying to pretend like you're something that you're not. Put aside the public show of religiosity to try to impress somebody with your spirituality. He also says, put put aside all envy. This was used in secular Greek, by the way, to describe someone who would begrudge or resent another person for possessing something that you might long to have. And as a result of that, it would cause you to to develop a seething bitterness within your heart that would energize slander and even outward hostilities. He says, put that all aside. All of this jealousy that will lead to strife. By the way, this is at the root of the third world's hatred of the United States. This is at the root of the Middle Eastern hatred of the West. For example, the Muslim people see us all as the great Satan. And they are, of course, in their minds, the people of God. And yet they look at us and we live in prosperity and they live in poverty. 
We live in, for the most part, perpetual peace. And they live in perpetual sectarian violence. They are, as many people are, and as all unsaved people are, filled with malice, guile, hypocrisy, and certainly envy. We see this especially in light of those many Arab and Muslim nations that want to destroy Israel, that lives with such enormous prosperity and military might. Think of the envy that is there. You've got 22 Arab countries with 5 million square miles and 144 million people aligned with 1 billion Muslims. And they are unable to conquer one tiny little country called Israel with a little over 4 million Jews. Great example of guile, of malice, of hypocrisy, and certainly envy. And folks, we are all subject to that. And Peter is saying, put it all aside, especially when you're suffering under the persecution of some other group of people. By the way, we see this as well in the church. It can be resentment and jealousy over someone else's gifts or someone else's privileges or someone else's blessings. Put that all aside, he's saying. And so Peter speaks to us all and says, in essence, as you celebrate the power source of the transforming, imperishable Word of God, put all of this sin aside. Jettison your sin. Confess it. Forsake it. Mortify your flesh. And instead of that, he gives us a third consideration here, a third virtue. He says, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word. Said differently, and this would be my third point to you this morning, acknowledge your desperate need for the Word. Your desperate need for the Word. Like newborn babies, he says, long for the pure milk of the Word. What a stark contrast here. Going from depraved infidels to dependent infants. Going from self selfishness to selflessness. Be like newborn babies. Literally, in the original, it refers to a baby that is born just now. A newborn infant. And we've all seen newborn infants. I've had the joy of seeing my children born. I know what it looks like when they first enter the world. They are utterly helpless. They are utterly dependent. They're struggling to survive. And they're desperate for one thing. Mother's milk. What a powerful analogy. What Peter is saying to the saints scattered abroad is simply this. Even as a newborn infant has a natural instinct to desperately crave mother's milk, knowing that they cannot survive without it, so too, this is how you must be. You must acknowledge your desperate need for the Word. But the inspired apostle knows that the counterfeit, counterfeit milk of the enemy can be very tasty to infant Christians. It can spoil our appetite for pure milk, so therefore he commands that we are to be like newborn babies that long for the pure milk of the Word. Long, of course, has the idea of a passionate, intense, insatiable craving for something, a consuming desire, but for what? Well, for the pure milk, meaning something that is without deceit, something that is unadulterated, that is uncontaminated, Something that is unpolluted. In other words, he is implying here, don't crave for something that could be a polluted substitute. Crave the living and enduring Word of God that was preached to you, as he has mentioned earlier. Long for the Word which is the supernatural source of your new birth. 
It is so tragic, is it not, to look on television from time to time and even sometimes in our communities and see malnourished children. It is also tragic to see malnourished Christians. I find them very easy to spot. They will be Christians that will nurse on soft drinks, so to speak. They will enjoy eating spiritual junk food. They will enjoy listening to cotton candy sermonettes for Christianettes. This becomes their only nutrition. And as a result of that, these types of Christians can be those who will have little, if any, discernment. They will certainly not be able to grasp all that Peter has reminded them of in the first chapter here. They will not grasp the glories of their salvation. They will have no comprehension, yea, they will even hate the doctrine of election. They will not understand what Peter has told them, that you need to celebrate because you are chosen, sanctified, sealed, and blessed. They will not understand the source of their salvation being the Father that drew them, the power of their regeneration. They will not understand the promise of, promises of their in, eternal inheritance, nor will they rejoice in the certainty of their salvation which is reserved in heaven. And of course, because of this, because of their poor diet, they will not be living in light of eternity, nor will they live separate from the world, nor will they live in reverential awe, nor will they have an appreciation for the magnificence of their redemption that would cause them to long to live separate from the world, to live holy, obedient lifestyles. They're not going to have, therefore, an undying love for the brethren. Instead, they will be like those mentioned in 2 Timothy 4, 3. They will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn aside and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. They will be like those children that Paul mentions in Ephesians 4, verse 14. Children that are tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Folks, this is what happens when you refuse to acknowledge your desperate need for the Word. Satan, of course, knows how important the Word is, not only for salvation, but also for our sanctification. And that's why his primary assaults are on the Word of God. I think of this new movement that is spreading so rapidly around our country and around the world, the Emerging Church, it's called. They, of course, believe that the Bible is unclear and that what we need to do is just to enjoy the mystery of our confusion. And, of course, they therefore assume that God is unable to clearly communicate to his creation. And yet he will hold us accountable for that which we could never understand, which is ridiculous. They believe in what's called the hermeneutics of humility, which means that we need to be humble in our approach to Scripture because, after all, nobody really knows what it says. It is so unclear. Nobody really knows what it means. But dear friends, I would submit to you that this is arrogance of the worst sort. It is only unclear to those who are unsaved. For to them it is foolishness. And tragically, I believe that this is indicative of people who have been fed polluted milk. They have suckled at the breast of deception. They have no understanding of the glorious truths which Peter has given to us here in his first chapter with respect to our salvation with respect to the imperishable, living Word of God, the abiding Word of God. Therefore, they will have no discernment. 
No power. No power to jettison sin. Because indeed, without the Holy Spirit living within, there will be nothing to restrain the flesh. And of course, for those kind of people, they will have no longing for the pure milk of the Word. When I think of humility, I think of faithful saints who have shed their blood for the Word of God. I think of humble saints, like I'm sure many of you, who spend many hours during the week meditating on the Word, praying with your Bibles open, rightly dividing the Word of truth. I believe that true humility occurs when men who are called and gifted and empowered by the Spirit of God, teaching shepherds, humble themselves in their studies, They try to rightly divide the Word of God to be a workman that's not ashamed. And then they will ascend the sacred desk and they will be able to say to the people, Thus saith the Lord. And then humility carries on when the people of God hear the Word of God preached to them. And by the power of that Word, they commit themselves to holy living and to glorifying God in their lives. Child of God, please hear this this morning. For this is the Word of God. Our spiritual birth originated from the Word of God. And our spiritual survival and growth depends upon it. There is no substitute. Therefore, we must not only celebrate our power source and jettison our sin, but also acknowledge our desperate need for the Word and commit ourselves to a steady diet of the Word, to feed on it every day. And in verse 2, notice he says, Do this like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Here we come to the fourth virtue of maturity. Necessary for not only surviving a wicked world of persecution and suffering, but literally transcending it with victorious hope. What is it? We must disapprove of our current level of spiritual maturity. Long for the pure milk of the Word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. The assumption being that you need to realize That you need to grow beyond where you're at. And friends, I ask you, are you suspect of your own spirituality? Or are you quite comfortable with where you're at? And if you're quite comfortable with where you're at, then you're not growing. And indeed, there will be an increasing level of sin and immaturity that will begin to manifest itself in your life. You see, spiritual growth cannot occur apart from a sincere desire to grow. It's very obvious. It's interesting to me that the grammar here in this passive verb, may grow, literally means that it's the Word of God that will grow you. He's saying, in essence, long for the pure milk of the Word so that it may grow you in respect to salvation. Again, this is why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. There's a metamorphosis that's occurring within a believer. And that occurs by the power of the Word. This is why Paul would say in Romans 12.2 that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Again, the idea of a metamorphosis. This metamorphosis will happen to you by the power of the Word. It's not necessarily something that you are going to choose to do, but the Word will cause it to happen to you. That's the power of the Word. Peter emphasizes the same truth in 2 Peter 3.18 when he exhorts us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But again, dear friends, this will never happen unless you're dissatisfied with your current level of spiritual maturity. 
And I might also add that there's an amazing thing about the Word. The more you devour the sincere milk of the Word, the more dissatisfied you will become with your own spiritual condition. And likewise, you must know that the polluted milk that Satan offers in so many ways will make you feel great about yourself. Will make you relish your, your current spiritual condition. I think of Philippians chapter 3. Remember when Paul spoke of how he would gladly give up everything in life. For what? For a greater more noble and exhilarating goal, which was to know Him. Paul said, Oh, that I may know Him. Now friends, I ask you, is this the passion of your heart? Charles Spurgeon, that great English preacher of a century past, spoke to this very issue and I remember reading this quote some years back, and I wanted to find it, and by God's grace I did, and I want to share it with you. It's a bit long, but it's something that I think will speak to your heart as it did to mine with respect to this whole issue of being dissatisfied with where you're currently at, wanting to grow more, wanting to know the Lord more deeply, more intimately. Here's what Spurgeon had to say. It is only the regenerated and saved man who can feel the desire that I may know him. Are you astonished that a saved man should have such a desire as this? A moment's reflection will remove your astonishment. Imagine for a moment that you are living in the age of the Roman emperors. You have been captured by Roman soldiers and dragged from your native country. You have been sold for a slave, stripped, whipped, branded, imprisoned, and treated with shameful cruelty. At last, yon are appointed to die in the amphitheater, to make holiday for a tyrant. The populace assemble with delight. There they are, tens of thousands of them, gazing down from the living sides of the capacious Colosseum. You stand alone and naked, armed only with a single dagger. A poor defense against gigantic beasts. A ponderous door is drawn up by machinery. And forth there rushes the monarch of the forest, a huge lion. You must slay him or be torn to pieces. You are absolutely certain that the conflict is too stern for you. And that the sure result must and will be that those terrible teeth will grind your bones and drip with your blood. You tremble. Your joints are loosed. You are paralyzed with fear. Like the timid deer when the lion has dashed it to the ground. But what is this? Oh, wonder of mercy! A deliverer appears. A great unknown leaps from among the gazing multitude and confronts the savage monster. He quails it not at the roaring of the devourer, devourer but dashes upon him with terrible fury till... Like a whipped cur, the lion slinks towards his den, dragging himself along in pain and fear. The hero lifts you up, smiles into your bloodless face, whispers comfort in your ear and bids you be of good courage, for you are free. Do you not think that there would arise at once in your heart a desire to know your deliverer? As the guards conducted you into the open street and breathed, and you breathe the cool, fresh air, would not the first question be, Who was my deliverer? That I, may, that I may fall at His feet and bless Him. You are not, however, informed, but instead of it, you are gently led away to a noble mansion house where your many wounds are washed and healed with salve of rarest power. You are clothed in sumptuous apparel. You are made to sit down at a feast. You eat and are satisfied. You rest upon the softest down. The next morning you are attended by servants who guard you from evil and minister to your good. Day after day, week after week, your wants are supplied. You live like a courtier. There is nothing that you can ask which you do not receive. I am sure that your curiosity would grow more and more intense till it would ripen into 
an insatiable craving, you would scarcely neglect an opportunity of asking the servants, Tell me, who does all this? Who is my noble benefactor? For I must know him. Well, but, they would say, is it not enough for you that you were delivered from the lion? Nay, say you, it is for that very reason that I pant to know him more. Your wants are richly supplied. Why are yon vexed by curiosity as to the hand which reaches you the boon? If your garment is worn out, there is another. Long before hunger oppresses you, the table is well loaded. What more do you want? But your reply is, it is because I have no wants that therefore my soul longs and yearns even to hungering and to thirsting that I may know my generous loving friend. Then suppose that as you wake up one morning, you are informed that this wondrous being has not only done for you what you have seen, but a thousand deeds of love which you did not see, which were higher and greater still as proofs of his affection. You are told that he was wounded and imprisoned and scourged for your sake. For he had a love to yawn so great that death itself could not overcome it. You are informed that he is every moment occupied in your interests because he has sworn by himself that where he is, there you shall be. His honors you shall share and of his happiness you shall be the crown. Why, methinks, would you not say, tell me, any of you who know him, tell me who he is and what he is. And if they said, ah, but it is enough for you to know that he loves you and to have daily proofs of his goodness. You would say, no, these love tokens only increase my thirst. If you see him, tell him I am sick of love. The flagons which he sends me and the love tokens which he gives me, they stay me for a while with the assurance of his affection, but they only impel me onward with the more unconquerable desire that I may, that I may know him. I must know him. I cannot live without knowing him. His goodness makes me thirst and pant and faint and even die that I may know him. Oh, dear Christian. I must say to you that tears of discontent should stream down every cheek when we consider how little we know Him and how tragic is the reality that so often our desire is not for Him but for the things of the world. Don't you understand that in order to know Him, we go to His Word. That's where we hear His voice. That's where we commune with Him. That's where we grow into a sweeter fellowship with the lover of our souls. That's where He illumines our minds and our hearts and encourages us and gives us a song in the night. How can we possibly be content with our current condition? Knowing the infinite galaxies of His glory and grace that we have yet to behold. And yet we are content with our pitiful television sets and our romance novels and all of the allurements of the world. But we can see Him. We can see Him through His Word because He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. For as John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it is the Word of the living God that does this marvelous work. For as Paul reminds us in Philippians 2, verse 12, that it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Oh, would that we all be appalled with the undeveloped and sickly appearance of our spiritual estate. And instead, long, therefore, for the pure milk of the Word, that it may grow us in respect to salvation. In Psalm 119, there are 40 benefits that are ours from meditating on God's Word. Let me give you just a sample of a few of them. The Word of God, we are told, will bring God's blessing, enable you to imitate God 
produce a clear conscience, produce thanksgiving to God, produce an, an obedient lifestyle, purify your life, give you counsel, enhance your wonder at God's wonders, strengthen you in time of grief, remove the false way from you, produce new understanding, produce reverence for God, comfort you in your, your affliction, give you a hatred for evil, give you a song through life, guard you from panic, give you good discernment and knowledge, give you direction in your life, give you joy in your heart, sustain you when you're helpless, cause you to fear God's judgments, bring a love for the Word of God, bring conviction for sin, surround you with delight in spite of difficulty, develop the discipline of prayer, rescue you when you are defenseless, draw you back when you go astray, and affect every aspect of your life. Now, friends, is there any wonder why the Holy Spirit would speak through the inspired apostle and tell those suffering saints, Oh, dear saints, long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And that ultimate salvation will be when we are in perfect conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask you this morning, do you long to hear the very voice of God through the Word? Do you long to know your Savior more intimately? Do you perceive, as the psalmist did, the Word of God as something that is sweeter than the honeycomb? Do you want to ingest every morsel completely and immediately when you do feel the surge of supernatural insight and discernment and power? In time of trouble, do you run to find your Bible? knowing that there is no other source upon earth that can bring comfort and discernment. How precious is the saint that has a discerning palate for the truth, for the pure milk of the Word, who, as the psalmist says, delights in the law of the Lord, and in that law he or she meditates day and night. Well, such a person will want to grow in respect to salvation and Peter gives us one of the most powerful reasons for having this desire for the Word and the growth that it produces. He gives it to us there at the end of verse 3. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And here, my friends, we arrive at the fifth and final mark of a mature saint. Not only must we celebrate our power source, which is the Word, jettison our sin, acknowledge our desperate need for the Word, and disapprove of our current level of spiritual maturity, but fifthly, we must rejoice over past blessings. The grammar here helps us understand the term if is the idea of since. It's the if-then concept. In other words, since we have tasted the sweetness of God's blessing, since we have been born again, since we have experienced in the past sweet communion in our secret devotion to God, as we come into His very presence and enjoy Him as He ministers to us in fellowship, since He has proven Himself powerful on our behalf over and over again, since He has demonstrated His faithful love toward us, since His Word has given us enormous clarity and comfort and hope and joy in our life, because of all of this, naturally, we're going to want more of the same. That's the point. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Oh, child of God, think of all of the ways that you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Think of that right now. Look around you at your family and your friends, at your health. Look at all that God has given us. And this is just a trifle, just a sample of that which will be ours in glory someday. I remember when I was a little child, we used to sing in our Sunday school classes a little song, Count your many blessings. See what God has done. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. That whole song, maybe many of you remember that. See what God has done. And dear friends, this is the point. If you have tasted of the kindness of the Lord, if you will count your many blessings, if you will think of all that He has given you, then to realize that these marvelous blessings, 
have come from the storehouse of divine love that is revealed to you through this Word. When you realize this, you will run back to that only source of nourishment. And you will be like Jeremiah who said in chapter 15, verse 16, Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. May this be the testimony of our heart. And my friends, if this is the testimony of your heart, you will celebrate your power source, which is the Word of God. You will commit yourself to jettisoning, laying aside all of those old filthy garments of sin that pollute the world. You will acknowledge your desperate need for the Word, even on a daily basis. You will be suspect of your spirituality, disapproving of your current level of maturity. And certainly, you will be one who will rejoice over past blessings. And my, how many of them we have been given. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in the power and indeed in the clarity of Your Word. May its power produce much fruit in our life this morning. And especially may the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the reality that sinful man cannot be reconciled to a holy God apart from faith and the grace that only Christ could give, May that glorious truth penetrate the heart of even the most hardened unbeliever this day. And may today be the day that they experience the wonderful miracle of the new birth. I ask this in Jesus' name and for His glorious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.